0: I'd like you to take your Bibles this morning and turn, please, to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. And it shouldn't be hard to find out where that is. You go to Genesis, turn right, go all the way to the end. Revelation 19, beginning with verse 11, reading through to verse 21. I want to talk about those verses this morning. Would you stand, please, in honor of God's word? Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes, they were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean followed him on white horses now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of almighty god and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords and then i saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Father, we thank you this morning that we can come to you in Jesus' name, praising you for your written word, praising you for your living word, asking that your Holy Spirit might have liberty here this morning, that people would understand what your word has for us today. God, you've got great things for us. and We thank you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> thank you. You may be seated. For about 6,000 years, the human drama has played itself out, been unfolding since the day that man sinned in the Garden of Eden. And the whole of history has been moving toward one tremendous event. And that event is when the Lord Jesus returns to the world in power and in glory to reign on the throne of David. When Jesus was here on earth, he made man promises, made many promises to his followers, but perhaps none is so great as the promise that he will indeed one day return to this earth. In fact, the last recorded words of Jesus are found in the book of Revelation at the end in chapter 22, verse 20, where Jesus said, surely, surely, it's with a guarantee, surely I come quickly. The fact of the matter is that Jesus is coming again and he'll return in the rapture to claim his people and take them to heaven. But just as every coin in your pocket might have two sides or two parts. His return has two parts as well. The first part is when he returns in the clouds to receive his people in the air, what we call the rapture. And the second part is when he returns in glory to defeat his enemies and to reign upon the earth. And it's this event that I wanna focus on this morning. Many famous men have left us their legacy in their words. For instance, Richard Nixon said, I'm not a crook, but he was. And George H.W. Bush, the 41st president of the United States said, read my lips, no new taxes, but there were. And Bill Clinton, well, he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, but he did. What's the point of that, Pastor? Pastor? The point is that men's words are just that, words. However, the words of Jesus are truth and everything that he has ever said is true. And when he tells us that he's coming again, beloved, you better believe it. Jesus is coming again. And I want you to know this morning that the king is coming and he's returning to this earth one glorious day to reign in peace and glory on the earth. And you need to be sure that you're ready to meet him. If you haven't met him as a result of his first coming and know him as Lord and savior, you need to do that so that you can be ready to meet him when he returns the second time. Let's spend some time together in these verses as we think on the subject, the king is coming. It's not a very original title for a sermon. I've probably got three or four of them titled the king is coming and you've heard many, but I couldn't come up with anything original. So the king is coming. And I want to talk about that this morning. First of all, his coming will be visible. When the rapture takes place, it'll be so sudden, so swift, so quickly that people will not even know that it's taken place. Oh, they'll see the results of it, but they won't know that it's taken place. Like a thief in the night, Jesus will come and he'll steal away his people from the earth and he'll take them to heaven. And the rapture will not be a visible event. But when Jesus returns the second time in glory and in power, everyone everywhere is going to know about it. Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so come. Amen. Well, let's look at what these verses tell us about this visible event. First of all, the appearance of Jesus. These precious verses tell us something about what Jesus will look like when he returns to the earth the second time. Notice what the Bible says about the appearance of Jesus. In verse 11 of our text, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And Lord of Lords. From this description, it's clear to see that Jesus is a little bit different than when he came the first time. This time he's full of glory. This verse tells us that Jesus Christ wears on his head many crowns. These are not crowns like the Antichrist wore. In Revelation 6 2, we're told that the Antichrist was given a crown. And the word here refers to the victor's crown, a Stephanos. And it's very literally the reference to the olive leaf crowns that were given to the victors of the Greek Olympic Games. When they won a game, they were given a crown of olive leaves called a Stephanus. But on the other hand, Jesus wears many crowns. And from these crowns, we get the word diadem. And they refer to crowns of royalty. While the Antichrist had to be given a crown, Jesus already wears them. Jesus is already the king of kings, whether men acknowledge that fact or not. People can pretend Jesus isn't Lord, but one day his sovereignty will be revealed in power and great glory in the earth. This verse also tells us that his eyes were like a flame of fire. And among other things, that speaks of his holiness. When he returns the second time, he comes not as a meek and lowly lamb, but he returns as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He returns not in humility, but in power and authority and great glory. What a difference there is between the Jesus of the first coming and the Jesus of the second coming. The first time he came as a servant. The first time he was despised, rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows. He appeared to be nothing more than one more man among millions of men just like him. Isaiah 53 tells us when the prophet wrote, Concerning Jesus coming, he said, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form nor comeliness that when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised. He's rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The first time he came, no one but a handful of common people even took notice of him. The first time he came, he came to those who hated him without a cause and put him to death. But things are different this time around. Now, now he doesn't appear as a servant, but as a king. Now he hasn't come to suffer, but to render judgment. And now he hasn't come to die, but to visit death upon all those who have defied him and despised him. Jesus has returned in power and in great glory. What a glorious savior we serve this morning. God help us to worship him in the way that he should be worshiped accordingly. You know, I'm sure even as I'm preaching to the 830 crowd and you're the people that have been here, been steadfast all through the years. I know that the early crowd is made up of those people who are good believers who can get up in the morning. And if you didn't wake up with those drums, don't go back to sleep now. But I'm sure that even in this crowd, there may be some here this morning that don't know Jesus. And it's you that I especially want to talk to today. I don't know why, but God has laid this on my heart and I want to share it with you this morning. We have the opportunity today to meet him as Savior. And if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, as the king of your life, you're going to have an opportunity to do that very shortly. Today is a day of mercy, but that will be a day of wrath. The question you have to ask yourself is which one do you want, mercy or wrath? And then these verses tell us that he's faithful and true. I'm sure for many, it looks like Jesus would never return. Even in this day, people say, well, he's just not coming. I know preachers as well as other people and I'm not separating the two, but the preachers ought to know better than anybody else, that say, well, maybe someday, maybe someday he's coming. I've heard people say that. Well, you can count on it that he's faithful and true, and he can be depended on to keep his word forever. What he says he will do, he will do. Jesus is coming again. The Antichrist, like all the other world leaders, will rise to power riding on the backs of lies and of false statements, But when Jesus appears, there are no attempts to prove that he's who he claims to be. He shows up as king, and the world knows it's true. And I want to say just a word to you who love Jesus. Beloved, always remember that you can always trust Jesus. He will always keep his word. If he's made promises to you, then he'll surely bring it to pass. And you just keep trusting and know that he is faithful and true. So he's not only faithful and true, but he fights in righteousness. Verse 11 tells us all down through history, there have been wars, wars that have been fought for many foolish reasons. In fact, all wars boil down to one thing, sin. They all come from the fact that men want to be God. Men want to try to place themselves in a position where they can be in total charge of a country or even the world. We don't have to look further than the man who occupies the Oval Office today. If you've followed the news this week, he's even told schools what they're going to do and which bathrooms their students are going to use an attempt to control the country. But when they do this, other men stand up and say, no, 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 you will not reign over us. And war is the result. Jesus, on the other hand, wages a righteous war. His cause is just. He fights the battle of the Lord. We may like to think of Jesus as a man of peace, and he is the Prince of Peace. But the Bible also makes it clear that he's a man of war. Exodus 15, 3 tells us that the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Certainly, God will pursue peace. But if a man will not repent, there comes a day when that man must do battle with the Lord. God will not allow unrighteousness and sin to go unchallenged. He will make war with the enemies of God. So we see something about his nature. But in these verses, we also see his names. When the Lord returns, three new names are attached to him. And these names reveal much about his character and his person. The first is the name of mystery. The Bible tells us that Jesus has a new name written that no man can know. It seems that they refuse to know Jesus and know his name just as a a byword but now they can't know him at all. Beloved, the time to know Jesus is now. He's revealing himself to men and women, boys and girls, as the savior of sinners' souls. But there's coming a day when men will not be able to know him as savior, but only as judge. And I beg on you to call on the name of Jesus while he's still saving souls. Don't wait till he returns in judgment. And that day, you'll not even be able to know his name. And then he has the name of ministry, the word of God. He's called the word of God. This is the name of his ministry. Ever since he stepped down onto this scene, Jesus has ministered through his word. In Genesis one, he merely spoke and created this vast universe and all it contains. I like Hebrew. I never was a very good Hebrew scholar. And I had a professor tell me that with great assurance that I was never going to be a Hebrew scholar. But the Hebrew language leaves out articles in some places. There's no the and so forth, a and whatnot. And I love when you look at the Hebrew of the first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning, in English, God created the heavens and the earth. But then God said, let there be light. Well, that's not exactly what he said. The Hebrew language says he spoke the name of light. And he just simply said, light be. And it happened. So I love that. He spoke the word and it happened. So the word of God lives in the eyes of men. But when he returns in power and glory, he'll speak the word and his enemies will be slain before him that day. May I say to you that Jesus is ministering right now through his word? It's the word of God that reveals our sins. It's the word of God that points us to a redeeming savior. And it's the word of God that tells us how to live. Today, that word can be such a blessing in your life. But if you refuse to accept the word of God in salvation, one day you'll face the word of God in judgment. And that day, it will contain no words of mercy for you, but only damnation and judgment. Today is really the only time that you have to get ready to meet the Lord. And then thirdly, he has the name of majesty. This verse tells us that when Jesus returns, he'll have a name embroidered on the thigh of his garment, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Has that ever puzzled you, what that means that he'll have on his name embroidered the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Has it? Let me, not if it has. Let me know you're awake out there. I know it has. Let me tell you something what that means. You see, it says it's on his garment and on his thigh. Well, when the Greeks tried to translate Hebrew into Greek, they didn't have a word for the Hebrew word of talit. There's no transliteration of that. It's just talit. That's what it's called in Hebrew, and there's no Greek word for it. They called it napkin. They called it uh, cloth. They called it garment. They called it robe. Um... They called it by a number of things, but they never had the word tallit. And what is the tallit? The tallit is a Jewish prayer shawl. And I'm not going to take the time to go into all of that, but every man was commanded to wear one. Every Jewish man wore one. Even today, many do. And God told Moses how to make those, and he told them how to put on the fringes of their garment uh, certain tassels. This is all found in the Old Testament. And what those tassels have as you know that every Hebrew word has a numerical equivalent. And there are twists and winds and uh, twisting bands wound around the, what's called tzitzit on the fringes of the garment. And on the bottom part of the shawl, it spells out the name of God. There are 8, 13, 5, 15, and they spell out Yahweh. We won't go into that. That's another whole message. But the important thing is to know that they spell out the name of God, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, how does it say that Jesus is coming back? He's riding on a white horse and he's seated and embroidered on his robe and on his thigh, because that's where the tzitzit would fall. It says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's that simple. Well, that was worth the price of admission. But that's a title that he has always deserved and one which has never been acknowledged by many men. In fact, when he was here on earth, his own people refused to acknowledge him as king. And the Roman governor, Pilate, placed the cruel mocking sign over his head that read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Beloved, Jesus is far more than the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day he's going to return in power and the world will be forced to admit that which they've always denied that Jesus is a king. And what a glorious day that's going to be. Well, my friends, have you made that admission yet? Have you bowed before Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? I keep coming back to that because it's so important. What you do about Jesus will determine what he does about you. You need to be ready for the king most definitely is coming. And then the armies of Jesus. Look at this army in verse 14. Every king has an army, and the Lord Jesus is no exception. He has an army that's large, and it's of a special nature. Notice how his army is dressed. They're wearing fine linen, white and clean. And there's no armor. There's no mention of them having weapons. And isn't this a strange way of sending soldiers into battle? Well, it would be if this were any other army, but this is the army of heaven and the king, King Jesus does all the fighting himself. Well, who's in this army? Well, let's look at the attire. It tells us and it gives us a clue. If you look at verse 14 and then go back to verse eight, it appears that the apparel, from the apparel, that this army is the bride of Christ. It's you and me. And we're going to be riding in that army when the Lord returns to claim victory over his enemies. Now, it's been about 35 years since I rode a horse. I don't know if I could do it again. And maybe, but you don't have to worry. You'll know how that day. So let's look also at the armaments of Jesus in this war. When Jesus returns to fight this battle, he doesn't bring guns, tanks, artillery, nuclear weapons. He doesn't bring anything like that. He merely brings his word. Remember, his word is sharper than any sword, two-edged sword or otherwise, and he has the power to help men, and it has the power to judge men. Instead of needing arsenals of weapons, all Jesus needs is his word, and his enemies are defeated. Isaiah prophesied that, and he said, with righteousness, in chapter 11 of Isaiah, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity the meek of the earth, and he shall... Smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. It says here that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. The word word rule here refers to shepherding. After his enemies are defeated, the Lord Jesus will establish a kingdom. And he will lead the peoples of earth just like a shepherd leads his flock. And that day he'll lead them beside all the still waters he will cause them to lie down in all the green pastures. He will be a shepherd to us all. But it also mentions that Jesus will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. And what a picture this is. You, can, you know what a wine press is. You've seen pictures of them. Well, this picture is a man crushing with his feet, grapes to force them to release their juices. And in the same way, he's going to crush the life out of every opponent of the righteousness of God. It'll be a terrible day for the unsaved. So his coming will be visible. But secondly, his coming will be violent. The fowls of the air are to be called in verse 17. The slaughter will be so great that when the Lord does battle that God calls for the fowls of the air to come and dispose of the bodies of the slain. Revelation 14:20 tells us that the blood will be to the horse's bridle and what a slaughter that will be. The flesh is to be consumed. Notice that all levels of God's army, uh, God's enemies, are on the menu for that great supper. In life, they were separated by class, by rank. Here we see slave and free men, small and great, all reduced to nothing more than food for scavengers that day. I'm reminded when I think of scavengers of the vultures. You've seen them on the side of the road, eating the roadkill before we could get it home for supper. Some of you aren't laughing. <laughs> I remember my early days when I first came to Charleston in 1956. I was a young teenage boy. And I remember I had a girlfriend, and you know, we used to sit out on a, on, on a porch on Vandross Street and listen to her dear grandmother who was an elderly lady in 1956. I don't remember how old she was. She was in her 90s. And she lived through the days of Reconstruction. And she knew the South and the South well. She knew the old, old South. And I used to sit at her feet and just listen to her talk about the days of the war, as she called it, and the Reconstruction period. One day we were sitting out there on a Sunday afternoon and there were some vultures that were eating some kind of dead animal on Vandross Street. And she, I said something about them being vultures. And she stopped me and she said, Oh, no, son. No, no, no. Those are in Charleston. Those are Charleston eagles. <laughs> well, these will not be Charleston eagles. These will be vultures. But what a lesson in life. They were different. Some gave orders. Others carry them out, but in death, they're all equal. Beloved, death is the great leveler. No matter who you are, when death comes, it comes for you, for everything you had and everything you were will be no more. Your money, your position, your power, your intellect, everything will be gone. If you leave this world without having trusted Jesus as your Savior, you have nothing but hell to look forward to. And I don't say that lightly. Some think they're going to make it to heaven because they're neat. They're good. I've heard many times, and you have too, somebody who say, well, my God would never send anybody to hell. Well, that's true. Their God probably wouldn't. But mine will. Yours will. Some think that they're going to make it just because one reason or another, the truth is that no one is going to make it to heaven without Jesus. No one. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no man cometh to the Father, but by me. When you leave this world, you had better know Christ. If you don't, you're going to go to a hell not prepared for you, but prepared for the devil and his angels. You go by choice. You choose to do that. You choose not to accept Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And then his coming will not only be visible and violent, lastly, it'll be victorious. The earth's armies are going to be drawn to Armageddon. All the armies of the world, armies that today will join forces to fight against the Lord Jesus when he returns, armies that will be fighting with one another just before he returns, will join efforts to defeat the Lord and his army. But this is meant to be. God is going to draw them all to his killing fields to execute his wrath upon the enemies of the Lord. Their desire will be to put an end to the Lord, And all he represents, but they will fail miserably. Earth's armies will be destroyed at Armageddon. Two verses tell us about the amazing news of how this battle turns out. Two verses that we read in Revelation 19, verses 20 and 21. The devilish duo are destroyed. Throughout the tribulation period, the Antichrist and the false prophet have led many people to believe that they were superhuman, They had used deception to convince the world that the Antichrist was in fact God. Their plan will be so convincing that the world will bow down in reverence to the beast. However, when the Lord returns, it quickly becomes apparent that these men and all their bluster and their miracles and whatnot were nothing more than mere men. These men are taken and they receive a fate worse than death. Remember, these are mere men and they are cast alive into the lake of fire. They're sent directly into hell, the first two occupants. Jesus will claim absolute victory over these. And then the doomed multitudes are destroyed. With the image of the great leaders being taken alive and cast into hell, still burning before their eyes, the Lord Jesus will speak the word and all the armies will be destroyed in an instant of time. Verse 13 tells us that their blood will stain the clothes of the Lord Jesus and the fowls of the air will destroy. Destroy their rotting flesh without firing a single shot Jesus will prove himself greater than any other opposing army and great might men can muster against him what a horrible day that the enemies of God but what a glorious day it will be for those of us who love him look for him and the special ones who ride with him in closing when these verses are read they sound almost too fantastic to be true don't they However, everything I've said this morning, everything I have preached this morning will come to pass one of these days. While this will happen, no question about it, it will happen. It's not an event that you should have to worry about if you're saved, if you know Jesus, and if you have a personal relationship with him. And I don't mean you just know about about him, but you need to know him to have a personal relationship with him and who he is you'll witness the victory of the Lord from the air. As we ride behind him, we're going to see our beloved bridegroom dispatch all the enemies in an instant of time. What a glorious sight that's going to be. Are you looking forward to that? I am. I want to see Jesus victorious. On the other hand, if you're not saved, you may very well be in that army and that crowd of soldiers that's instantly. Which would you rather have this morning? The peace of heart that comes with being saved or the doubt and fear that comes with being lost, would you rather serve with a victorious, glorious army or with an army that's defeated before it's even formed? It's already done. Beloved, you can be saved today if you'll trust Jesus as your savior, if you give your heart and life to him. Will you be ready when the king comes? As we close in prayer, I want to ask you that question. Are you ready? Will you be ready when the king comes? Father, we thank you that we've had this opportunity to look at your word. These are things that are to take place in the future. These are things that are going to happen. We know they are. But nevertheless, Father, we need to be ready. And I feel confident this morning that there's at least one here who doesn't know you. And it may be for that one person that this message was preached. It's been heavy on my heart all week. And I feel that there's somebody here today who needs to have this message, who needs to trust Jesus. Maybe they've been here for weeks, months, years. Maybe they've been in churches for years, but they never really came to know you personally. God grant that it might happen today as we stand and as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.